Um, today is going to be a heavy um, sermon. Uh, and one of the things we do here at the Grove is we preach, uh, primarily preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. Uh, that means we spent a year and a half in Mark, which was a long, long time. Um, and we've been in Esther for about seven weeks, and we have about three, four more to go. Um, and so t- we're getting to a point today that it's going to be heavy. Um, and I know you might be, this might be your first time here, and you're like, and you're like this is weird. Um, but it, it's going to be good, but it's going to be heavy. So, but what I, because of how heavy it's going to be, what I really need from everyone is just to hear me out th- to the end. Like, stay with me, get to the end of this sermon uh, with, with, with your attention and listening and hearing, because it's going to be heavy in the middle. Um, and, and so, spoiler alert, at the end, it's, it's, it's a really great passage of scripture. In fact, we're going to finish chapter 6, and we're going to read all of chapter 7, it's only 10 verses. Um, we're going to read all of chapter 7, and uh, it's like the most ironic and upside-down chapter in the Bible. Uh, it's, it, it, it would be funny if it wasn't so terrifying. And so, we'll read that together, and then we'll, we'll go through it verse by verse. Uh, so, it's Esther chapter 6, verse 14. And then uh, we'll pick it up, and then we'll go through all of, of chapter 7. Oh, too many pages. Uh, chapter 6, verse 14. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in the sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted, uh, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been, for we have been sold in I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been merely sold as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they had been drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, moreover, the gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that they had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. And so um, that's the word of the Lord. And I want to kind of catch people up. If, you're, if you have, if you've missed some things, uh, I'm going to do it quickly because every week it gets longer because we read more. But uh, just to catch you up, there's this great king. And I use the term great as in he's big and powerful, not that he's altogether that uh, good of a king. But there's this big king, and he, he's ruling this empire. It's the biggest empire the world has ever seen up to this point. It's the Persian Empire. So King Ahasuerus, uh, or his Greek name, King Xerxes, you may have heard that in history. 
He's the most powerful man on this earth. Um, and he, he divorces his first queen uh, and, and banishes her and gets rid of her. And he holds this, this competition for a new queen. Esther wins the competition. Esther becomes queen. Now, Esther's a Jew. Esther is, is part of the people, the covenant people of God. But Mordecai told Esther, Mordecai is her adoptive father. It's actually a cousin, but we, she lost her parents somehow. We don't really know how. Uh, so Mordecai took her in and raised her. Mordecai told her, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. And she didn't tell anyone that she's Jewish. She didn't tell anyone about her faith. Um, up to this point, uh, she's, not, she's not really living out her faith because we, we know that the king has no idea that she's Jewish. And it should have been super clear to him if she was following the law of God and she was only eating the things she was supposed to eat, if she was, only, if she was worshiping, if she was tithing, if she was reading, if she was praying, if she was celebrating the feasts that she was told and commanded to celebrate, the king would have known that she was Jewish, but she doesn't, or he doesn't. So we know she's not the most obedient Jewish uh, Jew out there. All the obedient uh, people of God moved back to Jerusalem when Isaiah told them, told them to. And so she stays, Mordecai stays, um, and, and this is where she is. She's living the life of a Persian. But then, second in command of the Persian Empire, this guy named Haman, he's one of the highest noble officials in the Persian Empire, he be, rises to great power, and he's excited because he loves honor, he loves power, he loves glory. But there's this one guy who will not show him honor, who will not bow down to him, and his name is Mordecai. He won't bow down. And when asked why he won't bow down, he says, because I'm a Jew, I will not bow down to you. So Haman, now an enemy to, to, to the Jews now, and really has been his whole life, his people and the Jew, and Jews have never gotten along, he decides he's going, to, he's going to try and kill all the Jewish people in the empire. He's going to kill them all. So he talks the king into it. He tells the king, hey, I can make you a ton of money if we kill all these people, all these Jews, and we take their money and we put it in your treasury and you'll make a ton of money. And the king says, yeah, sounds good to me. So this plan goes into effect. And they set a future date to kill all the people of God. And so they set this date up, it's happening, Mordecai finds out about it, and Mordecai is, is heartbroken. He's mourning, he's outside the king's gate, and he's just, I mean, publicly mourning about what has happened. Esther comes and is like, hey, what's going on? Why are you mourning? This guy, Haman, is going to kill all of us. He's going to even kill you. I know no one knows that you're Jewish yet, but don't think the king won't find out about you. You will also be dead, and you're whole line will be finished. And Esther, in a, in a great chapter, great, uh, great verses, she finally decides to start stepping up to be bold and to grow in her faith and be bold for God and be courageous and says, and tells Mordecai, you guys, you go back, you fast for three days, I'm going to fast for three days, I'm going to get my ladies to fast with me, we're going to fast, and then, and then we'll do, I'll go before the king. Now going before the king was dangerous, because if you go before the king and the king doesn't ask you to come, he doesn't lay down his scepter and tell you, you can come forward. You, you, he kills you. History tells us there was an executioner standing behind the king just ready to kill anyone who comes up before him. And so she says, if I perish, I perish. Just like Christ is, was, was willing and did die for his people, Esther was willing to die to try and save her people. She goes before the king. The king actually welcomes her and says, anything you want, I'll give you. Anything, up to, even up to half my kingdom. Now, this is something that kings said all the time back then. Herod said it uh, in the Roman Empire later. It w wasn't necessarily something they actually meant. It was just, I want to look so generous. It's kind of like, like the godfather says, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll grant wishes at my, at my daughter's wedding. And no one really asked for anything that big because they know that they're not going to get it. They might just die. So she says, she asked, I just want a banquet. I just want to have dinner with you and Haman. 
And he says, all right. So they have it. And then at the, at the banquet, he asks again, what do you want? I'll give you anything you want. Up to half my kingdom would be given to you if you just asked for it. And she asks for another banquet. And so that's where we pick this up at this, at this banquet. But something else happened in between. Mordecai continues to, to defy Haman and not bow down. So I'm sorry. Yeah, Mordecai defies Haman, not bow down. Haman goes home. He's upset. He tells his friends. He has friends. I know that's surprising. Um, he has a, a wife who talks to him, and, and they come up with this plan to build this 50-cubit-high uh, spear, basically, to hang Mordecai on, to, to kill him. It's about 75 feet tall. Huge. It's in his backyard. And he wants to show everyone, this is what happens if you don't bow down to me. This is what happens if you don't honor me, you don't glorify me, you get hung in my backyard, 75 feet high, so everyone can see you. This was the this is, this is crucifixion at its inception, at its invention. The Persians invented crucifi crucifixion. Um, this is how they did it, these, these, these gallows. They're not gallows like we think of, like in the Westerns, but they're these, these spears. And so he's built this. He's gone to the king to ask to kill Mordecai, and in a great reversal, he ends up having to um, lead Mordecai around on a horse, telling everyone how great Mordecai is, and this is what happens when the king delights in you. You get to ride in his robes and on his horse, and you can go back and read that more about that, but this is where we are. So that happens. Haman's just, he, feel, like he feels crushed and defeated, and his wife even tells him, if this is what happens to, to, to a person you're against, then you are defeated. And in the midst of that, the eunuchs come and says, come to the second feast. It's time. And so that's where we pick it up. And you, you, you've heard how the story goes. So is God going to save his people? At the second feast, they're drinking. The king says again, anything you want, I'll be granted to you, even up to half my kingdom. And, and there's something here that I think it's small, but we need to see how respectful this queen is. We talked about it a couple weeks ago, but this queen, I mean, like, Esther has every, like, in us, we think she has every right just to go to the king. Like, there's this guy trying to kill me. But look at the words choices that she uses. It's just... It's amazing to me. It says, if I found favor, and that word favor is the same word for grace. If I had found favor or grace in your sight, O king, if it pleases the king, let me not be murdered. Like, like that, just like that, that, that posture of humility towards the king. And she's the queen, and she says, just, if, if, I, if, you, if I found grace in your eyes, if I found favor in your sight, would you just let me not be murdered? Let my people not be murdered? If, if we were just being sold as slaves, I wouldn't even bother you. Because, like, your loss of the money that that would cost you, um, that wouldn't be worth our slavery. But because we're being murdered, I thought it might be okay to talk to you about, my husband about. That's, what, that's the humility that Esther comes. And again, I just, I just want to remind us that that, man, we can respect people and honor people who are dishonorable. We can respect people who are, you know, don't deserve it, right? We honor the title sometimes and not the person. And that's an okay, it's a great thing, it's a glorious thing to do, it's a good thing to do. It's something that God asks us to do. He asks us to honor our leaders, even if they're not respectable people or horrible people. It doesn't mean we have to agree with them or stand up and defend them, but we just respect them, we honor them. I don't care what side of politics you're on, we respect and honor the leader that God has put in. We don't, we don't have to agree with them. We can stand against them, but we, respect, we do it respectfully and honor, honorably. Whether it's a boss at work, you're an employee and you have a boss at work who doesn't deserve respect, doesn't deserve honor, you honor the title. It doesn't mean you don't come to them and ask for change, because that's what Esther's doing here. 
but you honor it. You honor them. You honor the title. Uh, church, you go to a, a church and, and you don't agree with the leadership. You honor and respect the people God has put above you. And you trust God. You trust that he, I will do what he's called me to do to honor and respect these people and he will take care of me. He will take care of it. Again, this isn't that you don't speak up when things are wrong or you don't speak up when you disagree with things or when things are evil, but you do it respectfully and on, on, uh, with honor. So she's growing. She's maturing. She's decided that she needs to find a way to use this position of influence that she's been given to do something good, and she uses it to try and save all, the, all her people. She said, if I perish, I perish. Mordecai said, maybe you've been appointed to this position for such a time as this. And God oftentimes will, will give people a position of power, a position of influence for, for just a time to this, to defend the people who can't defend themselves, to give a voice to the people who don't have a voice. And maybe it's, it's, it's in politics, maybe God's gifted some people here, some people listening in, in, in politics and, and to, to defend the helpless. Maybe it's just a position in your community. Maybe it's a place in your community or a place at your work to defend those who can't defend themselves, to, to uh, be for those who can't be for themselves. There's great need for that in our country when it comes to those who don't have a voice. And it's all over our country, even from, from pre-birth to, to people who, who find themselves helpless. They can't, get, they can't afford lawyers. They can't afford things like that. People just need help in our, in our country. People who, who can't afford it, people who don't have a voice, and we can be there for them. And so she uses this position of power to do that, and we should use our positions of power that we have, our, our spheres of influence to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. And there's a, couple, there's a couple things when it comes to that that we, want, that we want to make sure that we do. When we use that position of influence, we want to do it with respect and honor. But one of the things that I just see in this is we want to also make sure that it's for, it's for your family first, for God's family first. And so we, I don't think you could come to the Grove and think we aren't for our community, but we're going to take care of the family of believers, the family members here at our church first. We're gonna, and, and it's like this in our families, right? So, like, I love my neighbors, and I will do a, a ton for my neighbors, but I have to take care of my family first. I've got to make sure my wife's good. I've got to make sure my kids are good, and then my neighbors. And same thing in God's family. We wanna, sometimes we're so excited to go help the world, we miss the person sitting in front of us at church. We're so excited to go change our community, to, to, to spend, you know, to, to be generous and spend our money to help our community, to help people across the world. We miss the single mom or the person struggling in front of us. And we can't do that. when We, we want to use our power, our influence, our generosity to help God's family and then go out into the world and help the world. And this is what Esther does. Esther uses her position of influence to do this. And so she, she, she's respectful. She asks not to be murdered. Um, and this has kind of got to be this huge moment for King Xerxes, right? I mean, I don't think they have this great of a marriage, and the reason why I say that is because just imagine you're married for five, six years, and your wife wakes up one day and says, hey, I know you don't know this about me, I just want to tell you I'm Asian. And you're like, what? I didn't, how did I not know, you never told me you're Asian, like this is what's happened here. She wakes up, she has this dinner, and she's like, hey husband, I want to let you know I'm Jewish. And, and, and there's got to be this, even this fear in Esther 
when the king gets angry. Haman's obviously afraid. But even this fear in Esther, like, what is my husband going to do? What is the king going to do? I've been lying to him for five years. The Persians had their own religion, and it is highly likely that Esther was partaking in that religion because the king would make her. The queen has to be a part of what the king's doing. The, ki- the queen is an extension of the king. And so she's been lying. She's been hiding things from her husband, from the, que- from the king for five years. It's, it's likely that he's angry with her. And so she's got to be kind of scared too. Like, man, he's so angry. Is, he going, is this going to work? Am I going to perish here? But for her, it was a risk worth taking. So she says, hey, I am I'm Jewish. He, he never asked her for five years, who's your God? She never said who her God is. Um, and I think that's like some of us sometimes. We don't really talk about our God. We don't really talk about what should be the most important thing in our life. And like Esther, it never came up. It never came up. But here's what she does now. She identifies herself with the people of God, with God's family. And she says, I don't want to be murdered. I don't want my people to be murdered And the king says, who is going to murder? Who is he? Where is he? And who has dared to do this? And Esther says, a foe, an enemy, this man, Haman. Haman's terrified, and rightfully so. The king has every right to have wrath and anger towards someone who would seek to harm him, his queen, his people, has every right to be angry, every right to be wrathful when there's injustice. And we need, and, we, and this is an imperfect picture of something that we need to understand, is we need to be careful not to take an attribute of God, like love, and make it God, and that's all God is. God is 100% love, but when you separate God's love from his wrath, he's no longer a loving God. And you have to understand this, and you have to see this, because it's that important, that when you love something, you have, the more you love it, the more capacity for anger and wrath you have. The more I love my kids, the more wrath I could have towards anyone or anything that would seek to harm my kids. Man, the first day my son was born was the first day I thought I could probably murder someone. I'm not saying I will, don't, you don't need to go tell anyone, but like, I feel like I had the capacity that I love this kid so much that if someone tries to hurt him or take him from me, like, I don't know if I'd be able to stop hurting that person. And the more we love something, the more capacity we have for that wrath and that anger. And the king has every right to be wrathful and every right to be filled with anger and rage. And sometimes what we, in my, specifically my generation, has failed to understand about God is that God is love, but because God's love, God has wrath towards not just the sin of people, but towards sinners. God has wrath towards people. We love to say that God um, hates the sin. He loves the sinner, but hates the sin. And there's just a a little problem with that, and that's like all of this Bible has a problem with that. Because God specifically says he doesn't just hate lying, he hates liars. He does. And he, he, he gets angry at things that would seek to harm his creation. You can't, you can't walk away from the story of, of Noah and the flood and think God just hates sin and doesn't hate sinners. I don't know how that got turned into a kid's, a kid's story. Like, there's, like, pictures and there's, like, little, like, like uh, toys of, but, like, none of the toys have dead bodies floating in the water. 
But that's what's happening in this story. Is God has decided, I mean, he, he wanted to kill everyone. But he decided, I'll save this one guy who turns out to be an awful guy and a drunk and his family, and I'll save them when we're starting over. God has every right to be angry, every right to be wrathful, because we have decided to rebel against him as king. We've decided to put other things on the throne, other people on the throne. Really, and I think if you get down to the, to the real bottom of all your sin, the, the depths of your sin, you, you, you put yourself on the throne. You decided king, God is not good enough to be king I, I'm king of my life. I'm, I'm the ruler of my life. I'm the captain of my destiny. I will say, I have decided what's good for me. I'll live with this person. I'll, I'll, I'll have sex with this person. I'll eat what I want. I'll spend my money the way I want to. I'll raise my family the way I want to. I'll watch what I want, what I want to watch. I know God has said certain things in his word and certain ways that we should live for our joy, mind you. But we decide, he doesn't know what joy is. I know what my joy is. I'm going to do what I want to do. And the king is angry. And that should terrify you. And it keeps me up at night. Because the, the Bible will say things in, in Matthew like, man, many people are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord. But I'm going to say, depart from me. And they're going to say, man, I did all these things for you. Man, I, I cooked food for the potluck. I came to Sunday school. I did all these things. And you say, depart from me because I never knew you. And that's why we planted this church is because I just, I just stay awake at night just like worried for the people who, who come to church every Sunday, but they have no real desire to follow Jesus. They, they don't really want Jesus to be king of their life. They just want the stuff that he can give, which is heaven and not hell. But there's anger in the eyes of the king, and there's wrath in the eyes of the king. And he has every right to do that. And this story in Esther shows us an imperfect picture of that. While Xerxes has an imperfect wrath, an imperfect anger, an imperfect justice, there's a king who has a perfect wrath, a perfect anger, and a perfect justice. And so what happens? Haman, Haman's terrified before the king, before the queen. The king, in his wrath, rises up from the wine drinking. He went to the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life. And a huge reversal. The whole thing started because someone wouldn't bow before him but, and bow at his feet. And now he's at the feet of a Jew, at the feet of a woman. Which would have been highly unusual for any man to be at the, at the feet begging before a woman, let alone a Jew. It's this huge reversal of irony. That because this one Jewish guy wouldn't bow before him, now he's bowing before a Jewish woman. Begging for his life. The king comes back in and, and the king... Well, so he's, he's fallen onto the couch, and there was a, a, a rule back then that if the queen's on a couch, that no one else gets to be on the couch except the king, if he chooses. Um, that if the queen the, uh, is on the couch, and no man can sit there, it's just, it's her couch now. I don't think it's a bad rule. I feel like if my wife's sitting on a couch, I don't want other men sitting next to her anyway, so I'm not saying it's a bad rule, but it was a rule. That was a joke, I don't really, I do care, but we live in a different culture. Um, horrible joke. The king comes in sees him on the couch, and he says, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? So now the king says that uh, Haman is assaulting the queen. Is that, is that true? Is that what's going on? No, it's not true. But here, here's what's happening here underneath. It's, it's, it's not a perfect justice. The culture this king lives in is a culture of unrepentance. He can't admit that he's wrong. See, the thing is, is that he's the one who signed off on the decree to kill all the Jews. 
So he can't come in at this point and say, I was wrong. Let's get rid of that law. Let's stop what's happening. So he comes in, sees an opportunity to make up a lie and say, Haman is sexually assaulting my wife. And as those words come out of his mouth, they, put a, they cover up his head to kill him. He's to, that's, that's the law. You try to touch the, the, the king's wife, you die. And so there's this, the, the, what he should have done and what we should do when we, we're wrong is to admit we're wrong, to repent, to turn away from our wrong. But a, a lot of us, myself included sometimes, we get so stuck in everything I do is right. Even when we know it's wrong, we just press forward and look for, look for other ways out, any other way out of this except for admitting you're wrong. And that's what Xerxes does here. That's what Ahasuerus does here. He says, I, I can't admit that I'm wrong. And he still never does, and we'll talk more about that next week. But I can't admit that I'm wrong. We'll find a different way to kill Haman. So he finds a way to kill Haman and says that he's sexually assaulting his wife. And there's this eunuch here who has an idea. In verse 9, then Harbona, I think it's interesting that that name is in there, right? Like that, that you could just say, and then one of the eunuchs, but God's word is God's word. And he never wastes a word. I think this name is in here to tell us something. And I want to just say it, what I, what I, this, is, this is conjecture, this isn't something that's, you know, there's no commentary in here, but I just want to tell you guys why I think this name is in here. I think some of us have a hard time identifying ourselves with Xerxes although I think we should. I think some of us have a hard time identifying ourselves with Haman, although I think we could. But I think most of us, even just like a surface level reading of our life, could identify with Harbona. Because this isn't a just thing that's happening right now to Mordecai, or to Haman. Haman's being killed for something he didn't do. Although I'm not saying he doesn't deserve to be killed for something, but he's being killed for something he didn't do. And Harbona has this idea to hang him on the gallows that he created. I think some of us, we may not be the ones who come up with the big evil plans, but we're complicit in them because we do nothing to try and stop them. We do nothing to try and stop the things that are happening around us. We let them happen. We're just kind of like, um, like Esther in the beginning, just kind of going through life, letting, letting the culture, letting the river of culture just take us wherever it takes us. And Harbona didn't come up with the idea to kill him, didn't come up with the idea, but he adds to it a little bit and saying how it should be done. And this is what he says. He says to hang him on the gallows that he built to kill Mordecai. The, that's there in his yard. King says, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. So Haman dies. Haman's terrified. He begs for his life. And he's killed. The king's wrath was abated, and, 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 and I want us to talk about this because uh, we, we kind of already started in the heavy part I mentioned earlier. It's going to continue to get heavy, and just stay with me, but the king's wrath needs to be abated. It has to be. That's, it's, it, it's, it's, it's how this works, and for it to be abated, there has to be a death, and so Haman died, and, and, and Haman I mean, his desire was to be like his king. He, he had this king, and he just wanted to be like his king. His king was powerful. His king drank a lot. His king had many wives. He was rich. He had power. He had glory. And he wanted to be like his king. And so he spent his whole life trying to be like his king, to see the face of his king and to be like him. But he had the wrong king. 
And so he spent his whole life chasing the wrong things. And here's the scary part, is he got it all. I mean, like, his life ended in an instant. But before that instant, he really had everything he wanted except for one guy bowing down. But he had all the power. He had all the glory. He had the money. He had friends. He had a wife who talked to him. Like, he, his, he probably loved his life up until the moment it all turned upside down. Up until the moment he got outed for trying to kill the, the queen, even though he didn't know this, what he was trying to do. And the problem is, and the scary part is, there's some of us here who think our life is great. Who's, we're going through our life, and we think it's, it's going to be great all the way until the time you die. But you're not following Christ. You're not following Jesus. You don't delight in the gospel. You don't delight in God. You don't, you're not a disciple of Jesus, but your life's going to be okay. You're going to enjoy your life. Not to the fullest that you could in Christ, but you're going to enjoy it pretty good, and you're going to enjoy it the entire time that you're here on this earth until you die. But Haman's desire to be like his king wasn't altogether bad. He just had the wrong king. And so who's your king? Are you your own king? Have you put your spouse on the throne of your life? Have you put your kids? Have you put your job? Have you put that truck? Have you put that house that you want? That certain economic status that you want? Who, who, what have you made king of your life? What rules your life? What are you, who or what are you trying to be like? Because if it's not Jesus, man, things could go bad for you. And, 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 and really, if things, if things would have went bad for Haman to the point where he found that he needed God, that would have been God's grace. But God let his whole life be good. Just good enough to not really have any issues until the end. Who is your king? Who do you serve? Who do you want to be like? Whose face are you trying to see? In, in Corinthians, Paul tells, there's, Paul tells us that in one day we're going to see the face of God. We're going to be face-to-face with our king. All of us are going to be face-to-face with the king. Some of us, we're going to be face-to-face with the king, and the eyes will be welcoming. and He'll tell us to come in, to be a part, to sit at the table, to eat. Some of us, the eyes will be filled with wrath and anger, like Xerxes, but a perfect wrath and a perfect anger. And maybe, and and, and there's there's a whole theology right now where we don't believe in hell, where hell doesn't exist, there's no hell, a God of love wouldn't, wouldn't do that. So some of us may be here today, well, I don't believe in hell. You will someday. And that scares me, and so I'm just pleading with you, would you come to Jesus? Because here, this is a good story, but it could have been better. Imagine when, 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 the, when, when the king says, hang, hang Haman on the gallows, and Esther rose up and went to Haman and said, Haman, I forgive you. And she turned to the king and said, I'll hang in Haman's space, in, in his place. I'll hang for Haman. I will become your enemy so that he could be part of your family. That would be a better story. Well, the good news is, is Jesus is a better Esther. Jesus didn't stay on the throne. He left it. He came. He entered into history. Into part of this family that Esther here say that God saved through Esther. He entered into this family of God, this covenant people of God, and he lived this life. And he came before the Father and said, I will take their place. I know all these people, everyone sitting here today, was either an enemy to God or currently is an enemy to God. And Jesus said, I'm willing to take their place. I'm willing to be your enemy so that they wouldn't have to. I will leave your family so they can come in. 
And on that cross, Jesus was hung on a cross just like Haman was. And on that cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew the answer. The answer was so that God would never have to forsake you. But the question then is, have you repented? Have you put your faith in Christ? Are you really following Christ? Because my fear is that in the culture that we live in, in Spruce Pine, in Burnsville, in Newland, this w- in Western North Carolina, the, the, it's like one of the five holes on the belt buckle of the Bible belt. That's where we live. We live right in the middle of the Bible belt. And it's not necessarily a good thing. In fact, I would say it wouldn't, and that's a different sermon. But we live in this culture where everyone knows Jesus. But does Jesus know you? Jesus said, depart from me for I never knew you. To many people who thought they were in, thought they were saved, thought they were Christian. They came to church every Sunday. They went to temple every, every Saturday. They sang. They ate. They brought stuff to the potlucks. They cast out demons. They discipled people. But Jesus said, depart from me. See, what's happened in our culture is we've made Christianity this thing where as long as you just agree on a few theological points, you're a Christian. And that's not what the Bible says. We've made it to this thing. If you just pray this prayer, then you're in. And so you have these, these evangelists and these, um, these uh, revivals and these churches, and you, you know, a guy gets up and preaches this sermon, maybe kind of like I preach today. And at the end, if you just come forward, you pray this prayer, you're in. So people, they come forward and they pray this prayer and they turn around and say, welcome to the kingdom, brother. And agreeing that these things are true is not what I'm looking for. It's not what Jesus wants. But the question is, do you delight in Christ? Do you delight in the gospel? Do you have a desire to follow him? Because if you have no desire to follow Jesus, no desire to, to obey Christ, and you think you're a Christian, you're not. I'm not saying you obey him all the time and you, you walk and you're, you walk in 100% obedience, but it's just that desire to want to follow him. If that's not there, I don't know what game you're playing, but you're not going to win. And it just, it just scares me. And so I know this is a heavy sermon, but there's hope. Because Jesus took, and the reason why we have to talk so much about God's anger and his wrath is because without God's anger and his wrath, you'll never see how great the cross is. Because if God's just a God of love, then the cross really has no meaning. Because God could have just loved us into the kingdom, and, and we, no one had to die, because God's not angry, God's not wrathful, but the cross is a huge picture that God is angry, and God is wrathful, and someone had to die. But it doesn't have to be you. Someone's going to be punished for your sins. It's either going to be you, or it was Jesus. Do you delight in Christ? Do you delight in the gospel? That's what we're after. It's not this intellectual acknowledgement that Jesus was God, he born of a virgin, died on the cross, and rose again, died for my sins. That intellectual belief is not what Christ called for, but he called for faith and repentance. And that's the call before you today, is, is the cross beautiful? Is Jesus more beautiful than things of this world? Is there a desire to follow him? And if that's not there, what do you do? I mean, Zach, I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't know, what do I do? repent and you believe if you don't want to repent and believe ask God to give you that desire God save me God I want to want to repent would you help me want to want to repent and because hell is real because forever is a long time 
if that's you, I'm not sure you should be doing anything else but asking for that until it happens. Maybe that's too hard, and maybe you visit here today and you never come back, that's okay. But man, we get to these parts of the Bible, and I just feel like, God, this is, what you, this is where you wanted us to be at this point in time and this, on this week, because we're reading through Esther verse by verse. And so I just don't know what else to do but to read it, to let it be heavy, but to tell you there's hope. That we have a better Esther. We have a better Xerxes. We, there's a better Mordecai. There's, there's a better person. There's someone who took our place so that we don't have to be God's enemy. I just want to close with, with two last things. I think some of us can hear this message and we can feel like we don't like it. We don't like this. I don't, I don't like that God gets angry. I don't think God is angry. I don't think God gets wrathful. I don't like that message. I don't like fire and brimstone, Zach. That's why I come here. I don't like that. And I get that. I get it. And you think, well, you know what? Haman, you know, we don't know enough about Haman. Like maybe he was abused as a child or there's something that happened that made him the way he is. Maybe his daddy didn't hug him enough or his mom was really angry with him all the time or maybe someone hurt him or something and we don't know enough about Haman. There's some excuses of why he lived the way he lived. He's probably a good person. Maybe he just misunderstood. Whoever told this story is obviously biased against him. It's too dark, too intense, too harsh. And it bothers. It bothers me. And then you think that you're not that sinful. God's not that holy. Your life's not that bad. But then I think there might be some other people who read things like this and they get too excited that Xerxes killed Haman. And they're like, yes, crucify him in his backyard. That is a brilliant plan. That is awesome. I love it. God needs to punish the evil people. God needs to punish the Hitlers of this world, all the evil people of this world. God needs to do that. He needs to exact his wrath. He needs to do this. All the, like, child molesters and sex traffickers, God needs to just kill all these people. And you get too excited about things like this. And it's an equally wrong stance to have that leads to self-righteousness because you don't realize your place in the story. You're not Esther. You're not even Mordecai. You're Haman. You're an enemy to the king. And the king's angry and he's wrathful. But the good news, is, good news is that the true and better Esther took your place. And if you would just believe and you would just repent and follow Jesus, then he was punished for your sins and you would never have to be. I'm going to close this in prayer. It's going to close like that. We're going to sing some songs together. Um, I, I think I've really I'm praying about this, and I think the songs are going to really fit for this for this moment. But uh, we're going to have communion as well. Uh, communion is 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 this is this awesome awesome moment for Christians, and I love it. I love communion. It it, it makes me center the entire church service around the gospel. Because communion is just a reminder of the gospel. And so if you're a Christian here today, you follow Jesus, you have that desire to follow him, you're welcome to come to the table, to eat the bread, to remember what Christ did to you, to remember how he took your place. You can drink the juice or the wine to remember how his blood was spilt for you, so that your blood wouldn't have to be spilt. And how it's covered you, you know, to remind you of that. And that's what communion is. It's just a reminder. It's not magical. Um, it's just a reminder. 
to re- remind us and to remember Jesus and what he did on the cross. Remember Jesus and what he did for you. If you're not a Christian here today, there's no reason to come up and partake because you don't believe the same things we believe. There's nothing to remind you of. Uh, so we don't want to single you out, so we don't pass it. But uh, we, 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 we would just ask that you wouldn't partake. There's no reason to. But if you're a Christian, during, during the songs, you want to come up and grab some bread and grab some wine or juice and go back to your seat and just have a moment before God and just thanking him for his body being broken for you and his blood being spilt for you. I just welcome you to do that during this time. Um, so I'll close in prayer, and then we'll sing together. Um, you guys can stand or, or whatever. Father, I just, God, I just come before you, Lord. Um, and I just, I just feel like I should just leave it heavy, God. And Lord, I, I just pray that's the right thing. Lord, I pray that you would just, and if it's the wrong thing, I pray that your spirit would still work. You don't need me to do the right thing for you to work, God. I pray that your, your spirit would just work in the hearts of those here today. For the, for the Christian, for the believer, for the follower of Jesus, that you would just, just use this time to remind them of the gospel. Maybe they're struggling to remember how much you love them. And they can be reminded about how angry you once were. But how now you see them as a daughter, as a son. And that communion and singing would just be a great time of reminder of your love and your faithfulness. Maybe there's people here today who don't believe, who don't follow. Maybe they thought they believed, but they've realized they actually don't have a desire to follow Christ. They just really don't like the idea of hell. Lord, I pray that you would just work in their heart even now. That you would work in their, in, in their spirit, Lord, and you would just move them to faith. You would move them to repentance, Lord, that you would give the gift of faith to people here who don't have it, Father. Lord, that you would show them through the cross your kindness and that would lead them to repentance. God, I I trust you. You're good. You're loving. You're faithful. You're gracious and merciful, Lord. So be gracious and merciful here today as we sing and as we remember the cross. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.